to the Cinematchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are back for another two verse seven battle in our pick your all time favorite movie bracket challenge. This week we have Anti-Mame, which is our second seed versus Interstellar, which is our seventh seed. So we will break down these movies a little bit, get into their strengths and weaknesses, get into little details that made a big difference, talk about why someone would suggest this for us, why it would be someone's favorite movie of all time, and then battle it out until only one of these goes through to the next round. So starting off with Anti-Mame, we have that coming in at a 93% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes was nominated for six Oscars, did not win any, uh, was nominated for Best Picture, was nominated for Best Actress, Rosalind Russell, who played Auntie Mame in this movie, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Peggy Cass, who played Agnes in this movie, was nominated for Cinematography, Art Direction and Set Decoration, and Film Editing. And then we flip over to Interstellar, that comes in at a 72% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, also a big presence at Oscars season that year with five Oscar nominations, won one Oscar for visual effects, uh, was also nominated for score, sound mixing, sound editing, and production design. And all of these nominations make total sense when you watch this movie. We were able to pretty much pick out what it was nominated for. What would you guess the budget for this movie was? Well, the thing about Christopher Nolan is all of his effects have to be practical. So I can only assume that he actually flew Matthew McConaughey to space in order to film this movie. Yes. So the budget has to be pretty astronomical. It is pretty astronomical. The budget for this movie is $165 million. So a huge budget for this movie. You can definitely tell watching this if you can't watch this and appreciate the amount of money that went into this and the effects and the sound then you're lying to yourself because it's an incredible feat in effects and it it feels expensive. You watch it and it's just, just as most Nolan movies are, right? It feels very expensive. I think we felt that with Tenet, although a lot of people didn't like the storyline and we weren't huge fans of the storyline and it was a little convoluted. You have to sit there and appreciate the amount of work and technicalities, choreography that went into all of this and it does feel expensive. Tenet felt expensive. This feels more expensive, I think, because it's a space movie. But that's the details around our two movies that we have going head to head for this week. So we will jump right into it and talk strengths and weaknesses of these movies. So let's start with Anti-Mame and talk to me about your strengths for Anti-Mame. So this is something that I noticed with a lot of these quote unquote older movies that we've watched in this bracket and previous brackets is that these older movies are set in the most luxurious houses I've ever seen. And I think that has to be brought up, especially with, I think they call it an apartment that Auntie Mame lives in is one of the most extravagant apartments I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it's very well decorated. It's very nice, very cool to look at. And Again, this movie was nominated for set decoration, and that makes total sense, given that the apartment also changes quite frequently to fit whatever aesthetic Auntie Mame is feeling. Um, It reflects where her recent travels have been. So it's all very interesting and all matches her personality really well. I have a couple strengths for this movie. I actually really loved this movie way more than I thought I was going to. It 
felt like a movie that you would just be flipping through the channels, watch it and just find it to be okay. But for me, that wasn't the case at all. It was compelling. It was beautiful. It was fun. It was heartfelt. And I think the biggest strength of this movie is the main protagonist of this movie, which is Auntie Mame. You meet her and the whole idea behind this movie is that her brother passes away suddenly, leaving his, we'll say he's probably what, like seven, eight years old, eight-year-old son in the care of Auntie Mame, who is this extravagant woman who hosts cocktail parties every day in this very fancy, sprawling apartment who's just exuberant and exaggerated and very just lavish in the way she looks. And I think that you see her at first and you think, oh, this is going to be a woman who is just all up in herself and her friends and her lavish party and her lifestyle and money. And that's not who she is at all. She truly loves this kid, Patrick, who she takes in um, so, so much and loves all of the people in her life. There's a really fun scene at the end. Um, It's a basic dinner party scene when Patrick is older and he has this like hoity-toity fiance and her family come over and then their family, Auntie Mame's family comes over, which is like the, her drunken friend who was always passed out in the guest room at the parties and Patrick's teacher from elementary school at this like holistic school she sent him to and a couple other people. And it just shows that like she really cares about people who are good and kind. And she overall is just a kind, good woman. And that's not what you expect when you first start watching this movie. And it threw me for a loop um, how much I actually really loved this protagonist at the end of the movie. So something that I noticed in this movie is no matter how far back that we look into the past of movies, they all seem to be like the same that they are now. They still make the movie where the wacky family member is thrown into having to take care of this child suddenly. And then like how they deal with that and how the child deals with this new wacky person that is now their guardian. And I just thought that was really fun is that doesn't matter if this movie was, you know, this movie's 60 years old um, and we still see that happen probably within the past five years, right? Yeah, I think it's been replicated. And there's a lot of things that we can't speak to the origins of this or if this is one of the first movies to do it or it's groundbreaking in any sense. But I think you're talking about the replication effect. Even in little things you see in this movie, like Agnes, who is basically this woman she hires to come and type out the novel that she is creating, who is just a, a very annoying character, very over the top, but also very good hearted. Um, And Agnes has this moment of this trope you see in 2000s, 90s film where the ugly girl with the glasses takes off her glasses, pulls down her hair, and now she's this beautiful girl who people are seeking after. And that's what happens in this movie. And watching that scene, I couldn't help but think, you know, I don't, again, know if this is the first movie to do that, but it's the roots of it. You can, you can kind of tell that a movie like this is what makes movies that come out today, what they are. Yeah. And it's executed well. And I think a lot of these scenes were executed well. One of my other biggest strengths is that dinner party scene that I briefly touched on a little bit ago. 
It is truly so very funny and outlandish, but just also good hearted. It's one of those scenes in the movie where it could be very cheesy, right? Like the hoity toity family who Patrick is betrothed to their daughter comes over to meet the family. And it could be very over the top. Think like meet the parents, meet the Fockers type of thing. Two great movies, but a little bit over the top in a lot of things. It could have gone that way and just been really bad and a misplaced scene. But it was such a good combination of funny, but also, hey, don't talk about my family that way because I love them and these people are my family and they've made me who I am and I don't like the way you people are. Um, And it was very, it was a good mix of sentimental and a good mix of hilarious, but it really was a very, very funny scene too. I agree. I definitely found myself chuckling at the idea of these pulley levers that would raise up couches and also I'd like some but even that how progressive was it that I don't know if you noticed but they also had a table where she set the wine glass on and the lady goes to grab it yeah and she couldn't get it because the couch was too high up but the table lifted up to her and we have those now people have those raised coffee tables now and even so there was like these drinks she was serving these cocktails and she lit them on fire and everyone was like oh my god but how many fancy restaurants do you go to now where they light a cocktail on fire in front of you and you have to pay like 20 extra dollars for it? So it was it all felt very progressive. And I think that's the point of it is because Auntie Mame is such a progressive protagonist. She's very liberal. She's very artsy. She's very in touch with like volunteering and trying to help people who are less fortunate than her and very much more progressive than people would think that she was or as a wealthy woman in a very nice place, they would picture her. And I think that's the charm of this movie is that it takes you in very unexpected places. And it is funny. It's heartwarming. It's, it's a great movie. So that being said, what are your weaknesses for this movie? So I really only had one and it's that this movie feels like a stage play and I'm not big on that. I guess they turned it into a musical afterwards, but it it wasn't a musical beforehand. That's weird because it's the way that they ended the scenes where everything around the character got dark. Like during a stage play, there would only be the the spotlight on the person talking at like the end of a scene. And then they cut it to black. And they did that, I would say, about seven or eight times during the movie. And it just kind of threw me for a loop. And then the acting was also very stage-like. And it's not necessarily bad. It's just something that didn't work for me for the movie. I can see where you're coming from there. I had two issues with this movie. First being the replaces, it felt like it dragged. But I think overall, it didn't feel like a movie that had such an egregious timestamp that we needed to cut it 30 minutes or something like that. So it's not even a big dislike for me. But my main weakness of this movie is in what world does Patrick, who is under the care of his Auntie Mame and thinks Auntie Mame basically floats on a cloud for most of his life. When does and he is, make this turn? And it, yes, and is and I get it. He goes to like the fancy school and is around the fancy kids. 
but for being such a down to earth kid who is so cultured and traveled and has met so many different people from different walks of life, how does he fall for this girl who is clearly awful, 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 awful? How does he get engaged to this person? I don't understand how that happens. Him being who he is. He's not naive. He is very aware of what good and bad looks like. And that just didn't fall together for me that this girl isn't even slightly awful. It's not like she makes a great first impression and then slips up at the dinner party. She's consistently awful and full of herself and just a total snob throughout the entire, I mean, throughout the entire time she's on screen. So that didn't connect for me of how he would actually like this girl and get engaged to this girl. I 100% agree. There is something weird about Patrick as a child and Patrick as an adult, and both of them feel a little off. I think the fact that it that they are two completely, well, they're two completely different actors, but the characters feel like two completely different people, and I think that throws off a lot of what's happening in the second half of this movie. See, I would disagree with you there. I don't feel like they feel like two different people completely. I do feel like though older Patrick was given a storyline that didn't necessarily fit his character. But anyways, that being said, I think that's all we have for strengths and weaknesses for anti-mame. So let's flip over to interstellar and we will talk strengths first. And for me, the strength, I don't have a lot to say about it, but it is just visually it's, it's absolutely stunning. I usually hate space movies. I think that they're boring and I I just don't like them. Much as I've talked about before on this podcast that I really don't like science fiction movies, I think space movies go in with that. That includes Star Wars, that includes Gravity, that includes any kind of space movie. Like even some of the really, really good ones that have come out recently. Um, what was that one with Amy Adams that people really loved that came out maybe a few years ago? The only Amy Adams movie I can think of is the one where she's the princess. That's Enchanted, and it's definitely not what I'm thinking about. Arrival, that's what it was called. People loved Arrival, and I I was just so uninterested about it. But anyways, so I just think I, I generally don't love space movies. But sitting here and watching this space movie... Man, the graphics, the visuals, it's amazing. Even the non-spacey parts of it, I think one of the most impressive scenes to me is at one point they land on this uninhabited planet to try and get something. I can't even remember the plot of the movie. But anyways, they land on this planet and it's all water. And basically this giant like hundreds of feet waves are coming at them every so often. And it's incredible scenery. It's just the visuals are spectacular in that scene. It's a really, really good scene. And just in general, like the shots of Saturn, the shots of different planets, the black hole scenes, all very cool to look at. And I definitely appreciate it, even though I don't love space movies. Can I tell you why I think that you prefer this over other space movies? Sure. Because this one feels like it's about space specifically, where other movies take place in space, if that makes sense. Yes. 
I guess. But also that goes into my weakness though of I found this movie and I know you still have strengths to talk about, but going off of what you're saying, I found this movie so confusing because of all of the space mumbo jumbo they talked about. I'm like, listen, listen, Christopher Nolan, I ain't sitting here studying physics, studying space shit. I don't know what the fuck Matt Damon is talking about right now. I don't know what the hell any of this means. Break it to me down as if I'm a second grader studying the solar system. I know what Matt Damon's talking about. He's talking about that last semester you were reading Vickers and then you'll be, you'll be reading Gordon Wood. <laughs> Wrong movie. Uh, no, it, there's just a lot of space mumbo jumbo in this movie and I just couldn't care less. I really, I really don't care. I'm not in it for all of the intricacies of, of black holes and timelines and shit. Yeah. Just be like, oh, we fell into a black hole and it advanced us 11 years. Cool. I don't need to know why. I don't care why. It's just, I, I really don't give a shit. Um, and I appreciate the amount of research that must have gone into this movie. I think that this is probably one of the most difficult storylines Nolan has written because of the complexities of all the things he had to learn, probably about space and physics and all of these things. But I just, it, it got really, really confusing and really convoluted very quickly for me, especially the first 15 minutes. I think everything hit you really quickly and you had to piece apart a few things. And I was left still not understanding some things like why all of a sudden the teachers at his kid's school were trying to teach conspiracy theories to children. I, I still haven't picked up on why that was. And what's with this ghost. And we really don't know. And they throw us into a movie and we're like, well, the ghost we figured out the ghost we do figure out. But like you said, at the beginning of this movie, you're like, I have so many questions about, you know, why they live in a dust bowl and, and why they have to repopulate the world. <laughs> like why this dust is toxic. I, there was so much coming at you so quickly and it was impossible to piece apart. But anyways, that's my whole strengths and weaknesses. So tell me about your strengths and weaknesses. Okay. For the weaknesses, I don't really have any. I really like this movie. Um, for the strengths, they all seem to be space-based. This movie just hits space as hard as it can, right? Space, 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 space. And one thing that I think is very important about this movie is, I guess I'll phrase it as a question. Did you find watching this movie that it showed space as something calming or aggressive? Because it did both, I think it did both, but the calm was also aggressive. The way he frames it. Oh, no, it's just ominous and menacing. The, because it's The big. silence, the stillness, it's, it's creepy. Space is scary. I don't like it. Space is cool. Space is terrifying. I could never do any of that shit. Like, how, who do you talk to? What do you do? There's no sun. There's no, I mean, there is a sun that's out there somewhere, but you know, it's just like, ugh, God, no, I, I'm sorry. Space is scary to me. I don't like it. Wow. Well, I love space. I'm also too stupid to understand <laughs> it. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> but no, I think one of the big things about this movie is for me personally, one of my biggest strengths is that space feels both calming and at certain times you're like, this whole movie's going to go awry. Like when they're trying to twist the ship at the same time that the space station is 
twisting and I'm like, they're not going to get it and then they're going to blow up or whatever. And it's a lot of this stuff where things aren't happening because of the stillness of space, but it feels so intense watching it, watching them try and like match this up, even though they're not really doing much. So that's my strength. Well, I will take off of your strength and go into little details that made a big difference and go into my little detail for this movie, which is the silence of space. It's really incredible. And I have seen a fair share of space movies and I really, I I don't remember them because I don't care. Um, But I think Gravity is probably the best example of a movie that is so heavily based in space. And I don't think even Gravity did this as well as Interstellar did this. But the second that they went through, I'm, I'm so stupid. I don't know any of the things with space. Um, but as soon as they went from like earth and past the atmosphere into the space area, right? You got it. You got it. You got the words. (laughs) That's it. That's, that's the technical terms. Um, the stillness hit you like that. It was crazy because it felt like you were in the rocket ship with them almost because there was this absence of sound that translated so well through this movie and through like our sound system that it was very eerie. And they did that a couple times in just exploring these worlds and you don't hear any background noises or anything that you would hear even in a still room. I mean, even now we're sitting here, we're recording this, we've unplugged everything, but you can still hear the fridge buzzing. You can hear the cats if they're moving around. There's never that true absence of sound. You can hear an ambulance going by if it comes by a car that's honking. But with space, it's like this pure absence of sound and it's almost disorienting and deafening, but the complete opposite, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's very strange and very disorienting. And I don't think I've seen a space movie do that that well before. So I really appreciated that detail. I have another little detail that doesn't have to do with what you were talking about. And my other little detail is the casting choice for the, we'll call them the glow ups. Um, because basically what happens is Matthew McConaughey, the main character who plays Cooper has to go on this mission into space and doesn't know when he'll be back. Right. And he has these two kids, um, played by, I forgot her name, but she was like the kid who played the baby in twilight. I know I'm being so specific on this podcast today. It's blowing your mind. Um, (laughs) she played the baby in twilight and then Timothy Chalamet plays his other son and they grow up and the casting choices are really great. So Timothy Chalamet turns into Casey Affleck, which I never realized how similar they look, which is awesome. And his boy is wicked smart because he's on the planet (laughs) and he's going to try and kill Matthew McConaughey at some point. Yes. Um, And then the girl from Twilight, the little girl who played Renesmee, I think in Twilight, um, is Jessica Chastain and they look so much alike. It really is a very good casting choice for two grown up actors, especially well-known actors too. Like that little girl, I know she was like fresh off of Twilight when she was coming out of that. And Timothy Chalamet was going up into what he is now. And then to get Casey Affleck and Jessica Chastain to Oscar winning, I think both of them actors, um, to get them in there is, is awesome. And so it was just a really good glow up acting 
um, actor choice. I like that you talked about the acting because mine isn't about the acting at all. My little detail is that one of my least favorite things about space movies is the lead up of them going into space. And this movie went straight from him leaving his house to him in the rocket ship going to space. And I said, thank God that they cut out that like getting ready for space, putting on the space suit scene because it's my least favorite scene in every single space movie. And I know we have Armageddon coming and I know that's all about the prep before space. That is all about the prep and one of my least favorite parts of Armageddon, but that's on the, the list. We haven't talked about it yet, but I appreciate that this movie cut it out because it's not important. What's important is being in space, all of the space stuff, space, 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 space. (laughs) They leaned into it and I like that they did. All right. Let's flip over to little details that made a big difference in anti-mame. So my little detail is not necessarily about the movie, but just about how movies were at the time. And that this movie was made specifically for the actor before the title of the movie even shows up on screen. It is Rosalind Russell, big letters as small letters. Next slide. Anti-mame. This movie is specifically about this actress being the biggest part. And I think it's interesting that it's going up against Interstellar where the biggest part of Interstellar is not an actor. It's the director. This is Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. And just the way that Hollywood has shifted from these big acting names into these director names where the director names are sometimes bigger today. And I just thought it was fun to see that this actress was like the person. They made this specifically because she was going to be in it. I think that's really interesting that you talk about it. And I'm try I was trying to think back as you were talking about kind of those title scorecards and seeing if there was, you know, you think Tom Hanks, you think Meryl Streep, you think Tom Cruise, you think Brad Pitt, you think George Clooney, all of Leo DiCaprio, all of these big I've never actors. seen that. No, but how often have you seen like a Spike Lee joint or exactly. the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino or uh, Christopher Nolan, like in big, bold letters. And that's what you're going there for. Um even just like producers now or writers, you know, you see a Coen brothers movie or anything like that. You're not looking to say like, Oh, cool. Jeff Bridges is in this movie. That's not the main draw anymore. Of course, people are going to go see it if one of their favorite actors is in it. Right. But I think it is interesting. You talk about the shift and I, I like that though. I like that the directors, the writers have been made such a bigger deal. And I think we've seen that as we've gone through the Oscars from year to year is that we see writers that we recognize more now from year to year because they're getting more of this spotlight. You think Diablo Cody, you think a lot of these other, especially like female writers and directors, Chloe Zhao, like who have come out recently and who you kind of look forward to what they're going to do next. I think there is much more of an emphasis on that because I think in movies in general, we don't see many unique movies anymore. We are in an era that's so susceptible to 
sequels and reboots and remakes that when you have a Quentin Tarantino film or a Christopher Nolan film or a David Fincher film, you know, you're probably going to get something that's either adapted or original and adapted, not from something that's been done before, but adapted from a book or something like that. Um, and that's exciting. And, but I think if you see, you know, Meryl Streep in a movie, I mean, Meryl Streep could be in something fantastic or she can be in something really shitty, but she's going to be the best one in it. Speaking of Meryl Streep, I think that's the last movie that I can think of where the actors were the biggest part. Are you talking about the post? Streep, Hanks, the post. Yeah, see, and that's another example, though. They really tried to sell that movie with like, we fucking got him. We got Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Get your asses to the theater. Come and watch it. And the post was boring. It was fucking boring. Should we post it? Should we not post it? <laughs> it was Let's post it. fucking boring. So nobody wanted to go see that movie. It doesn't matter who you have. And it was fucking boring. People didn't want to see it. I'm, I think it got good reviews. I'm sorry if you guys like the post, but I, we did not. It just felt very boring for a movie. Like you said, that was so hyped up of like, we got two of the, probably arguably the two biggest actors in Hollywood to be in this movie get your asses in the theater and it just didn't work out. But anyways, we got into a tangent on that, but I do, I love that little detail and I really like the comparison you made there. My little detail talks about something I've already talked about, which is how funny this movie was. And I didn't expect it to have great physical comedy. So the physical comedy is my little detail. There's this really funny scene where she is trying to impress her future husband's family. And they're like, from the deep South and very like well-mannered individuals and they go on a hunt and they're all riding horses. And she's like, Oh, I ride side saddle. And they're like, Oh, perfect. We have a side saddle for you. And clearly she's never ridden side saddle before. And it's very difficult to do. And so his, this girl who wanted to marry Auntie Mame's future husband basically set her up with this terrible horse who is just like a bucking Bronco. And they're trying to get Auntie Mame on this horse and just like lifting her up and can't get her on the horse. And I know it's not funny me describing it, but watching it, it was a very funny physical comedy moment. Even in this dinner scene, we've already talked about it with the pulley system, with the couches going up and down and the drinks on fire and people hitting their head on the art pieces. There's a lot of physical comedy in this movie that is done not too overwhelmingly so, but very funnily. So something that I should have looked into before we started this podcast, because I thought you'd bring this up. Did she have like a sitcom or something? Did she have like the Rosalind Russell show where she did like I, small skits that she was the star of? I have no idea, but I'm this, sure people who are listening will correct us. We did not do enough research on this. But this movie feels like it comes from something like that, right? Or just her. I mean, she is a star. She demands to be seen and heard. And she is so dynamic that I think any movements she makes when they're exaggerated are captivating enough. And if they are put with physical comedy and put with really funnily, I know funnily is not a word and I keep using it. I don't think it's a word. If they're put with really funny scenes and really funny choreographed scenes, then you're just like, damn, Rosalind Russell's funny. But anyways, 
that was my little detail that made a big difference. So let's go on to our last category, which is why would this be someone's favorite movie of all time? And we'll keep with Auntie Mame. And my thoughts around this is that you like a dynamic protagonist. You like that very fabulous person who's also a good person. And you watch these stories because you think this person is just fabulous and she's compelling, but she's also compassionate. And you enjoy all the interactions between these characters and think that these interactions drive the movie, which they do. And that would be why it would be your favorite movie because you truly love watching all of the quibs and back and forth between these characters, good and bad. And you like a little tiny bit of humor in your movies. So I know who who recommended this one. And I would say that this would be someone's favorite movie because it is almost a snapshot of a specific point in time where it's the costumes and just like the way people talk and the way things are talked about as taboo, you know, because one of the big things of this movie is how they're raising this child. And it's funny what the things that seem to be like taboo that Auntie Mame is doing in this movie, even though today it's pretty standard stuff. And it's just like this fun snapshot of, time and place. And I feel like it's just this real pillar of a movie. I love that. So talk to me about why Interstellar would be someone's favorite movie of all time. You love adventure movies and with Nolan just doing everything at his specific scale, right? Everyone kind of does an adventure movie, but Christopher Nolan will take an adventure movie and then do it at such a big scale that it, really hits you. And I think that's why this would be your favorite movie. For me, I think this as someone's favorite movie could go on two opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay. You have person A who watches this movie for the first time and they're like, that's some cool shit. That looks cool. That looks cool. I'll watch it again because I like to watch cool shit. That's person A. Person B is like, this is so interesting. How are the inner workings of this working? I didn't quite catch it the first time. I want to watch it again and try and figure it out because I like space and I like learning about this stuff and I like trying to figure out what Nolan has put down. So let me watch it again to try and figure it out. Let me watch it a third time to figure it out. Let me tell my friends to watch it because it's interesting. And I think that's the power of Nolan is that he can get both of those audience members in there And I think it could go either way of this being either person A or person B's favorite movie. And on the sixth watch through, you're like, wait a second. So Christopher Nolan took Matthew McConaughey and turned him into gravity? (laughs) It's all very confusing. Again, I am too stupid to understand this movie and I don't care to understand this movie. Unlike Inception that I was that person B where I was like, I got to watch this 10 more times and let me tell all my friends to come with me and watch it and we'll all talk about it together. This one is just, I think it's so um, book smart almost and it's less creative smart with like space time continuum shit and like all of these things. He does a lot of that though. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't care to like research things to figure out this movie. It feels like a lot of work, (laughs) but I think 
you could have two different extremes of people who would find this to be their favorite movie of all time. So with all of that, with all of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, all these things we just talked about, we do have one winner that moves on to the next round. Again, a really hard matchup, you guys. I think there has not been a glaringly obvious matchup in this bracket challenge thus far. I'm looking at it right now. I think Brief Encounter beating out The Last Unicorn was was pretty apparent. I think that Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade beating out The Cooler was a little apparent for us. And I think World War Z beating out Fantastic Mr. Fox was probably pretty apparent, actually. So, but other than that, um, the other, however many of them were pretty tough. But on a three, two, one count, we will reveal which movie from this matchup will move on to the next round. Are you ready? Uh, yep. All right. Three, two, one. Interstellar. Interstellar. Interstellar moves on to the next round. It is our final two verse seven seed to move on. And with that, we will transition into the one V eight matchups. So we officially only have four more first round matchups in this bracket left, which is super exciting. It seems like it's gone by very slowly and very quickly all at the same time. But we did start this a while back. And like I said, we have four more first round matchups. So Interstellar moves on this week. Next week, we will drop an episode on Monday, May 31st, and we will go right into the one verse eight seeds with our first matchup being a Bronx Tale, which is our first seed versus Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, which is our eighth seed. So very excited to get into these. Really excited to talk about them. If you guys want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Cinema Matchups, where you can follow our content and see how these next few rounds go. If you guys filled out a bracket on Challenge, we've been updating those after every podcast episode is released. So go see where you are on the leaderboard. There's not very many ties right now. So there's a pretty solid ranking going on. It seems like it's been a really tight race for the first like five spots for the past couple of weeks with our first place person not moving, but we'll see how that shapes up after these first couple ones and after the next few rounds. So that is all we have for you guys today. Like I said, look for our next episode next week. We drop episodes every Monday and we are excited to continue on and finish out this bracket. So for this week for the Cinematchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg and we will see you next time. (laughs) 